0: Hello, this is New Books in Science Fiction and Fantasy. I'm Rob Wolf, host of the show and a science fiction author myself. And every two or three weeks, I sit down with a fellow writer to discuss her or his new book. I am happily in the middle of a multi-episode project to interview the authors nominated this year for the Philip K. Dick Award. This week, I'm speaking with Brenda Cooper, the author of eight science fiction and fantasy books, including her Philip K. Dick Award-nominated book, Edge of Dark. Brenda, welcome to the show. Thank you. Well, why don't we start off with an overview of what Edge of Dark is about? Do you want to set up the story?
1: Sure. One of the things that's fascinated me for a long time is the idea of transhumanism or um, basically what are we going to become? And, um, and there is a group of people who are transhumanists who kind of have this idea that being transhumanist means that you're going to sort of end up with some technological nirvana, and that we're going to transcend by being able to upload and we'll suddenly all, you know, become better forever and ever. And and as you can probably tell from my tone of voice, I don't quite believe that. So I wanted to have a co- sort of a conversation with that because I do actually think we're becoming something different, but I think it's not going to be necessarily simple and that there's going to be a lot of interesting things to overcome. So in this story, I'm exploring what the human soul might be about and how... You might decide if you're still human, if you have somehow been changed in some ways that sort are of beyond that. And um, and I'm exploring human relationships in a far future where we have a lot more technology. And it's a little bit of a love story and a little bit of a mystery and a little bit of a, a war novel and kind of kind of a lot of, I think, kind of meaty stuff. And hopefully it's fun for people to read.
0: Definitely, it's definitely fun to read. I just finished it today, just in time for the interview. And I would add that, uh, just for people listening, just to sort of give the kind of the larger context, there are when you talk about the sort of the war, uh, potential war aspect, or the there's a diplomacy aspect where there are humans who live. Basically, in the inner circle of a solar system, and then there are uh, beings who are descended from humans, but have been—I guess you'd say—massively enhanced by artificial intelligence or cyborg types who live or have been basically been banished to the system's outer limits. And really, it's about their interaction and these these beings from the outer limits who uh, who want to basically return to the to the inner area where they had been, and you know how that's going to happen if that's going to happen. And what was really interesting to me, and I could hear it in your explanation about transhumanism, is that it's not cut or dry. You don't make these beings who have been banished, who are a mix of both biology and technology, you don't make them just evil. It's more complicated than that. And, and you find a really interesting way to do it, I think, because you, you follow some Beings who are human in the beginning of the book, and and then become transformed into these creatures who have grafted their consciousness into uh, an artificial artificial beings, and I think that creates a lot of empathy uh, in the reader for for these beings who are both biological and artificial. And I I wanted, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that, about the the nuances you are trying to explore.
1: Well, I think you described it really well when you said it's complicated in a way. This is about our relationship with a potential future self, you know, with what we could be becoming. I mean, in a way, that's what the book is about. I think that's a really important conversation that we're having in a lot of places right now as we deal with more and more new technology that's actually really pretty transformative. Um, And so I did want to create characters that were um, people that you would be able to empathize with. And I did do it by having them changed against their will. And then they both have to explore what that change means to them. Because, of course, every being has a desire to live. They have a desire to continue. They have a desire to go on. They have a desire to explore themselves. Um, but yet they themselves are a little ambivalent, a little bit confused about what has become or what has happened to them. And then there are also the more traditional humans who are still more advanced than we are, but have chosen not to have certain kinds of augmentations on purpose. You know, and so that it's these two groups having to to explore that.
0: And it's interesting because the ones who have been against their will uh, transformed in this way, I mean, they basically think of, think of it when they think about what happened to them, that they were killed, <laughs> uh, which is, you know, strong language. But on the other hand, you also endow them with some thrilling capacities. You know, they can think and move at hyperspeeds. They can think telepathically with each other. Presumably, they can live forever. Although, what does life mean when they think of themselves as having been killed? I mean, there are a lot of interesting questions you raise. I try. (laughs) Well, so what do you think? I mean, where, where do you come down on this? There's clearly good and bad. And I wonder, as you drive to work or, you know, conduct your daily life and you think about the future, you know, are we headed for for something bad or something good?
1: I tend to be a positive futurist and I tend to believe that the future will be better than we often think it is. In fact, I give talks about the future sometimes. And when I do, people sometimes will come up to me and say, but there's all this bad news and I'm really horrified and I'm really scared. And that's understandable because we're in the middle of so much change. But a lot of the change is positive. You know, we have all this sort of negative news and the terrorists are going to get us and our our government is broken. But there's an awful lot of positive things going on in the world. We have less poverty, less war, even though it doesn't seem like it because we have all this media about it. We have a lot of other things that are really positive going on. And yet the story we hear is often negative. And I think I explore that a little bit in the set of books. The second book will come out in June of this year, and it continues to explore some of the same themes and I think deepens them a little bit, or I hope deepens them a little bit, Um, because I don't think it's that simple. I mean, if you took someone from 100 years ago and you explained this life where we're super connected up to our devices all the time, and it's got this negative in that we can all be in the same room, but yet we're all actually talking to people in other countries. But it's got this positive that we're all sitting here in the United States talking to people from other countries. I mean, I'm talking, I don't even know where you live. I don't need to know where you live. I'm sitting here having this lovely interview with you over my computer. And it was extremely simple to set up other than some email challenges early on. And, and it just works really well. And this would have been unimaginable, even in the world I was born into because i 'm in my fifties you know so i was I was raised where i didn 't have a cell phone, and my mother didn 't know where I was, and she wouldn 't have got in trouble for not knowing where I was when I was seven. I mean it was a whole different world
0: I mean everything you say is true if you watch you know an average evening news, it looks like the world 's going to hell, but as you say, you know poverty 's globally you know in decline and literacy is slowly rising if you average things out around the world so there there is clearly good news. Why is it that it seems so easy and the most natural thing to do when one thinks of technological advances is to think of, of all the dangers and problems potentially that would arise? I mean, when you think of artificial intelligence, most of the stories aren't about benevolent, helpful robots. They're about the ones that take over because they're smarter than we are and they've achieved singularity and they just get smarter and smarter and, and they're evil.
1: Probably a multitude of reasons why these are the stories we tell. Partly, these are the more interesting stories. Stories of survival, stories of things to be afraid of, stories of things to overcome are interesting to humans. Stories of utopia are inherently boring. We go out and we look for something else to do because I think we're wired to want change. Um, A second reason is about change itself because change is scary and is, as we know, the pace of change is increasing. My life is more different now than my life when I was born. My uh, I have a 35-year-old and a 19-year-old, and their lives are drastically different from each other because of the generations they were born in and the technology they were raised with. And so things are changing faster and faster, and I think fast change is both exciting and disconcerting and scary and then I also do think that science fiction has always served as a warning. It does say, hey, we need to think about this. You know, you talk about Brave New World. You talk about um, 1984. In fact, it was interesting. I am near the end of P.J. Manny's book. She's one of the, the, the PKD, fellow PKD nominees. And she's talking about many of the same issues that I am. And she, in the bit I was actually listening to on my way home, was talking about these old warnings of ours from 1984 and George Orwell and and Aldous Huxley's Brave New World, and about how Brave New World is in some ways scarier because it's it's got a complacent society saying, "Well, it's okay," you know. There's a last reason why I think we worry about technology, which is that technology can bite. I mean. Um, there's a lot of good that comes from, say, the chemical industry, but there's also been an awful lot of bad that's come from that industry. We know that. And often we see the ba- the advantages of technology before we see the disadvantages. Um, you know, 200 years ago, coal didn't seem like much of a problem. It was mostly doing a lot of good. It gave us a lot of power. We suddenly had coal in our, our trains and we could go these great distances. And how did we know then that, coal use would grow and grow and grow to, such, to to the point where it began to poison the environment and to where people have shortened lifespans because of it, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, technology is a two-edged sword. And I think because of that and because we've all experienced that, we have a healthy fear of technology and we need to be talking about The ethics of all the different technologies that we do, which is some of what I try to do in this book, is talk about basically the ethics of significant human enhancement, or some of the ethics of it.
0: You call yourself a futurist, and I wonder what that entails, if it's anything apart from being a writer of speculative fiction. You said you give lectures about... About the future? I mean, this is something you clearly spend a lot of time thinking about.
1: Yeah, and there there are multiple types of futurists. I am a professional futurist, kind of barely. In the sense that I do give talks about it, I go to Futurist Society meetings. I'm a member of the Futurist Society. I have friends who are Futurists. I write about the future. I've had articles in Slate and Crosscut and stuff like that. So I write some nonfiction, some blog issues about the future. There are also Futurists who are deeply trained in, um, say, scenario building and how to use a lot of mathematical capabilities to help them figure out what might happen. And there are futurists that might be deeply trained in a particular industry. So like Intel has a futurist who specifically is looking at the future of chips as an example. And many, many large companies have corporate futurists who do that. And to some extent, all of us who are in science fiction and all of us who are in technology and, you know, heavy-duty gamers and people, entrepreneurs, starting companies and all of this are all kind of amateurish to, to vaguely professional futures because we're scanning what's going on and we're trying to figure out what's happening, you know. So I am I do wear the title because I do actually get paid for doing it from time to time, but there's a whole sort of range in that profession And I do not do it full time. I mean, I don't really do anything except I have a, I I work in technology full time. I write probably half time. And then I do the futurist work and the blogging and the other stuff with the scraps of time that are left in between all of that when I'm not playing with the dogs or walking or riding my bike or doing something else to stay sane.
0: Well, you know, you just referred to the, to the job you have, and I'm, I, maybe, cause uh, as a writer myself who also has a day job, I'm always interested in how the rest of my life complements my, my writing. So you're the chief information officer, uh, for the city of Kirkland, which, uh, is a Seattle suburb. And I, I guess that brings you into daily contact with technology, although a very different kind than the anthropomorphic robot space travel kind. Um, <laughs> but I wondered if, if you find inspiration for new ideas in your work, like h- how that plays out. I mean, you are thinking about today's technology and very, presumably, very practical applications of how it's used, in this case, in local government. But I just wondered about that dynamic. If you if you sit there and you go, Eureka, I just I just thought of something, you know, about a government 200 years in the future and what they would do.
1: Well, my next set of books, which I've started, is set more near future, and it's set on Earth, which is the first time I've written books set on Earth in a very long time, so that'll be fun. And it's at 30 or so years away, and I can take a lot of inspiration from the work either some of the fellow futurists I know or some of the big companies I know representatives from are doing in what's called the smart cities area which is where people are looking at okay how do we take advantage of technology and really integrate it into cities now the city i work for kirkland is kind of small and we don't have enough money that we're on the cutting edge of smart cities but i have lots of access to figure out who is and what some of that work is and to try to get us set up so that when it rolls down new technologies tend to roll out in like the new yorks and the Stockholms and the uh, Singapores, you know, so they don't really roll out in in cities of 80,000 people, but they do eventually come down and impact us. So like we're now putting in smart lights where everything is timed, but in the big cities, they've been there for 20 years. So, So I do get a lot out of my day job. I also kind of think that having a hard day job doesn't hurt me. Um, there's often people that say, well, if you're a writer, you really want to be like a security guard or something. So you can leave your job when you're, when you walk away at the end of the day. And, um, and I don't know that I want to be bored eight hours a day in order to feed my writing and I don't want to be poor. So that, that's kind of where that is. I mean, my, my writing career, I have, I think you said eight, I think I might even be up to 10 novels now. And probably thirty or forty short stories, and if I add all that up, it's about a year of my current salary. So, so writing is a tough thing to make a living in. It can be done. I know some people who are doing it. I hope I can do it someday. If I could figure out how to make a steady seventy-five thousand dollars a year or so out of my writing income, I would quit my day job in a minute. But you know, I live in Seattle, so it's not. It's not like you can live on on poverty level income and and function. So.
0: Right. Why is it Why is it so hard to survive as a writer? You know, it's such a crucial function. I mean, it's how we hand down culture. It's how, as we've been discussing, exploring new ideas. I mean, storytelling is one of the oldest cultural traditions. And yet being a writer is something that for most of us, it's something we do in our spare time. I'm sorry I said eight. I think I got that from your website, actually. So eight, ten, you know. Whatever.
1: Uh, it <laughs> I mean, after, after a while, you stop really counting. You count the first few, you know, the first time you see a book and yours in a store, you cry. But, you know, after a while, it's just something you do and it's part of your world. I think I think part of why it's hard, and I think it's hard in every creative field. So if you think about music, if you think about acting, if you think about writing, if you think about painting, in any of those, there's actually a lot of money in creative fields. But that money goes to kind of the top 2 to 5% of the people who are actually working in the field. And then, you know, the other 95%, we'll just say it's 5%, you know, the curve is not all that steep. So if you're just entering the field and you're getting your first book Publish maybe you get $3,000 for your book, or maybe you get $1,000 for your book. And then maybe if you're a mid-list writer, you get ten or $15,000 for a book, which is a year's work. So, you know, think that through. It's still not a lot of money, you know, but it's better than you were. But And there's also this vast pile of people who are trying to break in, who want to do it. People really want to participate in creative fields. And so... You know, it's sort of a supply and demand thing. You know, if I if I fail tomorrow, somebody else will come along with a brilliant book that they'll sell to my publisher that will go in my spot, you know? So I just think there's so many of us doing it. And it's hard to be really, really good. If you look at the people who are really at the top of the game, they really have a lot of craft. And that's what I want to do. I mean, that's what I'm I'm reaching for. I certainly want to be a bestseller and I want to write the best book possible, but I find I have to continually keep learning to get each book better.
0: And what's your what's your method? I mean you write every day, do you circulate drafts and you know constantly rewrite?
1: Yeah, I've had different methods at different times. When I'm drafting a book, I typically write a thousand words a day as a minimum. And I often start books with nanoRimo because November is a good month for that. If you live in the Pacific Northwest, you know, you really can't go outside. It's dark. It's a great time to just dig into a novel. You're and not in the holidays yet.
0: And that's for people who don't know, that's National Novel Writing Month. So right. Yeah.
1: You write 50,000 words, which is not a whole novel in a month, or it's not a whole science fiction novel. Mine are about one hundred and twenty to 135,000 words, but it gets you a really good start, and it gets me really digging into it, which is nice. And then I write about a thousand words a day when I can be creating, meaning I'm not interrupted by other parts of the publishing process. And then I let it sit for a little while. And then I go back and edit because it's really a different brain that creates than it is a, that, that, that um, edits.
0: And, and then do you circulate it to other people and get feedback?
1: Oh, yeah. I have maybe five or six people that tend to be first readers. It changes a little bit sometimes, book for book. I think feedback's really important, actually, in this field because you can really tell where you've screwed up. And I have a few people um, who I just get such good feedback for. They, they, they end up with every book to look at because they know my weaknesses and can say, hey, look, you know, you know better than to do that. There's one who even, and we've talked about what my three top weaknesses are. And so she'll just write down number one, number two, when she hits the, <laughs> a paragraph that she thinks is exhibiting one of those weaknesses. So it's really great.
0: Great. Well, is there anything else you wanted to talk about?
1: Mm, I want to mention something pretty cool that all of us are doing together. As some of you may know, some of the science fiction awards lately have been a little bit fraught with um, not complete happiness, and, um, so all six of us who were nominated got together. We talked to our publishers. Our publishers all agreed to give us six copies of each book. And we're giving, we're doing a giveaway. Um, so at the website pkdnominees.xyz, uh, people can enter. And then, sort of towards the end of March, and I don't know exactly what the date is, I think it might be on the website, um, we're going to pull six winners. So six people will get a chance to get, A full set of all of the um, PKD nominated books for this year. And of course, we're all really thrilled to be nominated and and, um, somewhat giddy and happy to be interviewed for that matter. So we would love people to go over and and enter if they're listening to this before the time that we um, are pulling for the book. So that's probably the next three weeks or so.
0: And you also, all six of you did something pretty cool. You kind of interviewed each other had a conversation that uh that doug lane i think helped coordinate who is one of the nominees and who i interviewed in the last episode of of new books and science fiction so that that seemed like it was a, a bit of a speaking of technology a technological challenge but also sounded kind of fun he did
1: such a great job too we had techno- we had challenges putting that together we had skypes that wouldn't work we had people that would fly in and knock three other users off we had someone who couldn't hear anything anybody said other than things that doug said and he ended up putting it together there's a link to that podcast right on the um pkd nominees.xyz site i mentioned the podcast is one of the things right at the top you can find out more about the books and the nominees and one of the best things about the science fiction field is that most of us cooperate with each other, we're friends with each other, and we kind of think that if we work together, that's the best possible deal. And I think that this whole kind of a word process has been about that. So that's been an awful lot of fun.
0: And did you know any of the authors personally before you all were nominated?
1: Uh, Not all of them, no. I knew. I know Ramez Nam um, fairly well, and I know um, Adam Rakunas. In fact, I'd recommended Apex, Mez's book, um, already is a reading recommendation on my website. In fact, his whole series, everybody should read that whole series. It's absolutely fabulous. Nexus, Crux, and Apex. And I um, had been in a, a writing workshop with Adam and read uh, an early draft of Windswept, which was fabulous. And Adam's a really good writer, and he's also a really good cook, which is something that, that people might not know. But when you all sort of live together for a week doing writing workshop stuff, you find out who's good at what. And then the other three i've um, I think I've met Doug in passing, but I'm not hundred percent sure you kind of all see each other at conventions. Um, but it's been really fun to get to meet everybody else. So
0: wow, fantastic. well, it's a it's a small world. Technology makes it smaller in a way too, and which is a, a good thing, one of the good things. Um, well, thank you so much for taking the time uh, to talk with me.
1: yeah, thanks for thanks for inviting me to do so. And good luck with your own writing.
0: Oh, thank you so much. Uh, I've been speaking with Brenda Cooper, whose book Edge of Dark, uh, is the first book in the Glittering Edge series, and it was nominated for this year's Philip K. Dick Award. And I'm, I'm scheduled to interview uh, another PDK nominee, PJ Manny, towards the end of February, so stay tuned for that. Meanwhile, you can enjoy past interviews on our website, newbooksinsciencefiction.com, and you can subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss new interviews. You can also leave a review on iTunes, if you'd be so kind, so other folks know how great the podcast is. And you can follow us on Twitter at Fi. I'm Rob Wolf, your host and author of The Alternate Universe and you can follow me on Twitter at Rob Wolf Books and thank you very much for listening.